just be a moment. Hey everyone, and welcome to Chef AJ Live. I'm your host, Chef AJ, and this is where I introduce you to amazing people like you who are doing great things in the world that I think you should know about. Well, my very special guest today is the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Fiber Fueled, and the Fiber Fueled Cookbook. And tomorrow, he is hosting his own summit called the Empowered Gut Summit. It is absolutely free, but you do have to register. And he's here to tell you all about this wonderful opportunity and perhaps even answer a few questions. Nobody can pronounce his last name, so we're just going to welcome him as Dr. Will B. <laughs> nice to see you. <laughs> Thank you, Chef AJ. Um, hello, everyone. I got you. In fact, I, your book was literally sitting on my desk. Um, so here, of course, is Unprocessed, your book, Chef AJ, and it's a pleasure to be here with you today. Thank you. Happy Easter, oh. everyone. Well, thank you, and thank you so much for endorsing it. Did Did you have anything special for your microbiome for Easter, and is your Easter meal? Well, uh, you know, I, I feel like at this point, our our family, like our habits are so just sort of designed where we don't even think about it. And yet, like we're doing things that are good for the microbiome. So like as a quick example, Chef AJ, um, it's a family tradition. We wake up every morning and my wife will make a massive smoothie and we will share that collectively as a family. So everyone gets a little bit of the smoothie and it includes things like blueberries and broccoli sprouts, chia seeds, flax seeds, a banana. And, you know, you put all this stuff together and it's like, this is, you know, each one of these things is so good and nourishing for the body. And yet here is like this simple, delicious smoothie that we consume on a daily basis. And frankly, it tastes great. And um, to me, it's an excellent way to start the day. So, you know, to me, it's just kind of the routine. We didn't do any crazy special breakfast this morning, but um, but I, I think that, you know, it's, you're in a, I think you're, I guess my point is you're in a good place when you have managed to build routines into your day that are health promoting and you don't even think about it. And it's just the way that you live. Yes. Just another day. Is your, are your children old enough to know that they eat healthy? My, my two older kids are, so I have three kids. Um, my oldest Sarah Grace, she actually just turned nine on Friday. Um, my son Liam is six. And then our, our new baby, our, our sweet baby girl, Susanna, Susie, she is almost a year. So she'll be turning a year old in less than two weeks. And um, so my two older kids, I mean, they're not only are they aware of, you know, food that is healthy um, and they've heard these conversations and they laugh about stuff that, you know, I have to talk about publicly like poop and stuff. But anyway, um, they actually like they, they've, they've actually been probably the most evangelical ones in the whole family, to be totally honest with you. So our babysitters that come in, they'll like kind of have conversations with the babysitters. So, you know, what are you eating? What is that? They brought Chick-fil-A into the house. Oh, what's, what's going on with that? So um, it's, you know, it's funny. It's proud moments. That's funny. That is adorable. So the summit, is this your first time hosting a summit? That's something I've done many times and I find it very rewarding. I especially love interviewing people. No, this is not my first time, but this is, this is a new thing that, Came out of my book launch last year. So it started with the Fiber Fields Cookbook. And um, there was an Empowered Gut Summit in 2022, but that version was a part of the book launch. And so essentially what, what happened is if you had pre-ordered my book, then one of the incentives if you pre-ordered the book is you got to partake in the summit. And um, I really enjoyed it. And I feel like it's a great sort of thing to do for everyone. Like I've, I see it as a win, 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 where 
it's good for me. It's good for my friends. It's good for my, my community. We all get to get, we all get together and we can, you know, partake in something, uh, collectively. And like the beauty of it all is I can, you know, I have to give my time and I don't make money by doing this, but I'm able to offset the costs of doing this. And that makes it something that is, um, uh, I can make it free. And, and I think that's to me pretty cool that I, you know, I've pulled together 25 amazing speakers and chef AJ next year, we have to have you in there. Um, but I could do a gut, I could do a cooking demo if you want, or, or you know, that would be really fun. You're a highly versatile person. There's a lot of different ways that we could have you in the Empowered Gut Summit 2024. But, you know, I, I guess the the point, though, is that, you know, it's kind of I, th- I think it's kind of cool that you can have like these 25 highly compelling, unique speakers. They come from different backgrounds. Like I was taking a look at the list of the 25 and I was like, OK, so I think the number is like roughly 17 of them are plant based, but some of them are not. And that's OK. Um, people bring different per- perspectives and opinions in. But this is not you're not going to come away from this thinking that you're supposed to eat meat. If anything, what you're going to do is you're just going to be hearing about different topics. So, so it's not just gut health. You will hear about gut health. There's me. There's Alan Desmond. Um, uh, we have uh, James and Dahlia Marin talking about gut health, talking about SIBO. So there's that. But then there's brain health. There's metabolic health. There's blood sugar. There's mood. There's trauma. Um, there's sp- speakers that perhaps you haven't been exposed to that I think are incredible. Um, I'm really excited about the interview that I had with Dr. Gabor Mate. And he wrote a book. I actually have it right here because I just did his interview the other day. And he wrote a book. This is my, one of my wife's favorite books. It's called Hold On to Your Kids. And it's about parenting. And this is not a nutrition book. This is about how to have a loving relationship with your children. Um, and we, my wife and I, we talk about this book and think about it all the time in the way that we raise our kids. Um, but what we're talking about with him is trauma. And that's an important topic to me. Um, I've, I've seen the importance of that in uh, the lives of my patients. I've seen the importance of that in my own life. So um, so I'm, I guess the point is that I'm very excited to share these conversations, these sessions uh, with people. It's one of these things. I know you can appreciate this, Chef AJ. When you put a lot of effort and work into something, you kind of reach a certain point where you're like, I just want people to enjoy it. Um, so, and that's, that's what I'm hoping will happen over the next five days. It starts tomorrow and it ends on Friday. That's great. And it, I believe it starts at 6am Eastern nine, 9am Pacific every day. So it starts at six o'clock your time on the West coast. It starts at nine o'clock on the East coast. But the way that this works is like, this is not, sometimes I think people get a little nervous. Like, Oh, um, I work during the day, so I won't be able to watch at nine o'clock in the morning. Well, it's not actually a live session. So everything has been recorded. I've already done all the work. Um, what we're doing is on a daily basis, there will be a release of new sessions every day, somewhere in the range of four to six new sessions plus a recipe. And so now these sessions, like basically once you're enrolled, you are uh, you have a queue and you can see what the sessions are that are available for you to watch. And you can watch the new ones from today. And then like, Tomorrow, there will be new ones at nine o'clock and then the day after. But the other thing is that you can go back and rewatch or or watch for the first time sessions from prior days, as long as it's within this window where the where the summit is actually taking place. So the summit is taking place from the 10th until the 14th. 
but we're allowing people to view the sessions up until the 17th. So you have like this one week window where you can watch everything. That's your, fantastic. Your That's so generous. Yeah. And I've been putting the link in both what's called the chat and the show notes. So guys, just click the link. There's no catch. You can register for free. And the people yeah. are very impressed about having Gabor Mate on. Oh, he's, he's, I mean, I think he's incredible. And, you know, and then we have other people, you know, I mean, Dan Butner's in there. We have Jen Stevens talking about intermittent fasting. Um, Darren Olean, uh, Ayesha Shurzai, um, you can go down the line. I mean, there's 25 amazing speakers that are going to be a part of this. And, you know, I had someone ask Chef AJ, they said, and I know you have experience with this. They said, if I sign up for this, are you going to sell my email address to companies, you know, and then they're going to basically like use my email address to sell stuff to me. First of all, I think that's illegal. <laughs> I, I don't think that's legal to do that um, as far as I know. But even if it was legal, I wouldn't do that because that would destroy my reputation. And I'm far too young to be destroying my own reputation. Uh, I have 25 years before I can do crazy things like that. So anyway, the the, the point though is that there's nothing that's going to happen with your email address. It's the opportunity for you to log in. You will be a part of my email list so that I can send you newsletters where I break down scientific studies. <laughs> nice. That's great. Well, I'm excited. Anything else new with you? Are you writing any more best-selling books? Because that's all you seem to write. <laughs> well, um, I do anticipate there will be more books in the future, Chef AJ. Um, not really. I'm not yet in a position where there's been enough done to that end in order to make any formal announcements on anything, but I do expect more books to be in the future. I mean, I, I am not planning to stop at this point. And, um, and there's been, you know, during the, during the summit, actually, I have a couple of major announcements. I can't, so I can't, I can't share them today because then I would be uh, not breaking the news the way that I plan to, but there are a couple of major announcements that I'm making during the summit. So there's been a lot going on and I'm, you know, I, I feel like I'm in a good place because um to me, this is like everything that I'm doing. I'm sure you feel this way. There was the dream that I had when I was a teenager, and it was to become a medical doctor to help people. And it's like, you know, I spent uh, 16 years pursuing that dream. I was 34 years old when I emerged from that path and was able to practice medicine. And now here I am, and I'm doing something that feels like this is an even higher calling where it's like an opportunity to potentially impact the lives of millions of people um, to put on, you know, as an example, the summit or to write a book, you know, to put on the summit and have, you know, what I'm hoping will be tens of thousands of people who can learn from this and every single person potentially take something different away that they can apply to their life that's meaningful and difference making like that to me is what it's all about. And so the same goes with a book like whether you buy my book or don't buy my book is not really my concern, but I would love you to read my book, even if you borrow it from the library or borrow it from a friend, because um, I put a lot of effort into it and it really is meaningful to me when my book can go out to people that I've never met and they read it and it, and it helps them. That, that to me is what it's all about. Yeah, that's great. Well, thanks. You mind taking a few questions from the live audience? I'd love to. Let's do okay. it. Here's a fun one I haven't heard you answer before. Do breath mints upset the microbiome? And if so, how much? Most breath mints are going to have artificial sweeteners in them. That's, I think, the issue that I immediately uh, that immediately comes to mind. Peppermint itself, if you're talking about peppermint, 
So um, some of them, some you know, we all know some some of the brands that are like more. They're so packed with peppermint that you can like it flares your nostrils a little bit. Um, peppermint is not implicitly bad for the vast majority of people. In fact, peppermint has been shown to be uh, relaxing and soothing to the to the uh, intestines, not specifically the gut microbiome, but the intestines. And so it's been demonstrated to be beneficial for people that have irritable bowel syndrome. So I don't have an issue per se with like the ingredient peppermint that comes from a plant. Um, I think actually that's great. I, I, the issue that I'm concerned about is sort of the ultra processing that takes place in the, in, you know, as they transform this into something that's packaged as a mint and the addition of the artificial sweeteners and what those artificial sweeteners are doing to you because because artificial, there's no free rides. I mean, that's the reality. There's no free rides. Anything that you're adding to sweeten, it's doing something one way or the other. And with artificial sweeteners, they may not have calories, but they are affecting your microbiome. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. I don't think they taste very good personally. Yeah, to each their own. Um, I, I, I haven't really been doing that, you know, in a couple of years, back in the day, there were times where I would get a tin of Altoids or something like that. And um, okay, I, mean, I enjoyed the flavor, but I, I don't know that that's really necessary. I, you know, um, oral hygiene, the, the backbone of oral hygiene is not breath mints. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Okay. Here's a question from, who's that from? Stephanie, if one follows a plant exclusive diet, naturally high in fiber, what are your thoughts on drinking beet juice? Um, first of all, I think beets are incredibly healthy and there are polyphenols in beets. There are aspects to beets that are beneficial. One of the things that you get from beets are nitrates and they've actually shown that, that nitrates from beets will help to nitrates are very relaxing to the blood vessels. Um, they help to reduce our blood pressure. And so there's evidence in terms of lowering blood pressure with beets. There's also evidence in terms of Athletic performance, for example, if you were to consume beets or beet juice prior to running, uh, you know, a 5K, 10K or a marathon, something of that variety, it actually can improve your athletic performance. So how do I feel about beets or beet juice? Um, I, first of all, think that we should be consuming beets. And if you're going to juice them where you're removing the fiber, the thing about the beets themselves is like, I, I think that that's a reasonably healthy juice. It's the, the issue is that many people, when they, when they juice beets, they're also going to be juicing apples or something else to add some sweetness, additional sweetness to it. The beets are already pretty sweet, but some additional sweetness to it. And um, that's turning it into a sugar beverage. So to me, if it's just beet juice, I, I can get on board with that though. I might add some greens and, and a squeeze of lemon. That's what I might do. Nice. Thank you. Uh, Debbie's asking if any of your summit speakers will address weight loss. Yeah, we have Chuck Carroll. Uh, so Chef AJ, you'd be an amazing person to talk about that next year if you if you wanted to. Um, sure. But so we have Chuck Carroll. Chuck Carroll is from the Exam Room podcast with the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine. Uh, a very good friend of mine, Chuck. We talk all the time. And um, he himself has lost a substantial amount of weight. He's kept that weight off through diet and lifestyle changes. And, um, he's talking about weight loss and food addiction. He's an expert on that. He's fantastic. I, I think he's an incredible person. I'm a huge fan. 
I love him. Uh, the, the lady, Karen, who asked the question about the Breathman says she consumes icebreakers duo. So I Googled it and it's funny what came up was the environmental working group. I guess they rate foods and it didn't get a very good rating. I yeah, know. there you go. There you go. I mean, I, you know, um, I think we're all, like, I, 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 look, I don't want to make it sound like I never consume ultra processed foods. I do. And I do on a daily basis. I just try my best to not. And it's not easy. They're so convenient and oftentimes so tasty. And that's kind of what you see with this is like, it's so easy to have a, a tin or a can of those types of mints just sitting around in your car or at the office or wherever you may be. And you just pop a couple here and there. But the, you know, the, the issue with that is that then you're starting to turn that into almost a habit. And this is the, that when you do a habit, like a one-time thing, no big deal. But when you do it as a habit, then you're doing it every single day. And now this is becoming something that's going to have a bigger impact on you. Yeah. Why not just choose some parsley? Cause that's a natural breath freshener and there's some benefits to eating parsley. Yeah, totally. Or fennel seeds, you know, fennel seeds would be an example of something else that's a natural breath freshener. Um, so yeah, there's all other choices. Absolutely. I listened to a podcast recently you did about weight loss drugs. That was uh -huh. really good. I, okay. I, and so I'd love to hear, you know, because not everybody had heard that podcast, I can link to it. But what are your personal thoughts on all these new, you know, the shots and the pills? And Yeah, it's comp so it's a bit nuanced. Um, people know that I am a believer in food first. So like, diet and lifestyle should always come first. And um, I, at the same time, Chef, J, Chef AJ, and I, I think you know this about me, uh, I believe also that there is a place for supplements and for medications when we need them. And the issue that I take with the healthcare system is that it's 100% reliant on medications and surgeries and things like that, and has zero interest in talking about diet and lifestyle. Well, that doesn't make sense to me. But I also don't think it makes sense to talk about diet and lifestyle and then have people who truly do need medication and make them feel like they should feel guilty or feel wrong if they were to use that medication. So I, I think that there's something in the middle that needs to exist. But the thing about the, these medications, the, the new one is called Wegovy in the United States. Um, that's the weight loss medicine. Uh, the generic is semaglutide. And it's been around, it's the same drug that was, that's used for diabetes called Ozempic. Many people have heard about, talked about as Ozempic. So uh, a couple things about this drug. Does it work? Yes, it works. Does it work for everyone? No. There are people who do not get a response out of Ozempic. And you can look at the, the weight loss trials um, that have been done and that makes it very clear. So, uh, it's not a guarantee that you're going to achieve the effect that you're hoping to achieve. If it does work, what does that mean? Well, what that means is that you will have to continue to use this drug. If you stop using the drug, you will regain the weight. And that is quite clear from this, the research that it has been done thus far. Are there side effects? Definitely. Um, side effects in the short term are not necessarily things that I would characterize as nasty, but they may discourage you or scare you away, you know, like GI side effects, nausea, things like that. Um, the things that are nasty, they're not common, but they do exist. And it needs to be said that they do exist. There is a risk of medullary thyroid cancer. Um, that's one of the things. So if you have a history of that or a family history of that, or you have a condition called MEN type two, 
you can't take this medicine. You should not be taking this medicine. Um, so that's one of the major risks that's associated with uh, these these new medicines. So uh, do we know what happens if a person is on semaglutide for five years or 10 years? No, we don't have any studies on that yet. It's too early to say. So the sort of, you know, part that I don't like about it is that if you start doing this, you are making a commitment and it's a commitment that you essentially are going to have to continue to do in perpetuity, like essentially lifelong. And we don't know what that means over the long haul. Um, we just know that it translates at least for right now into weight loss. So um, the cost is expensive. Most insurance plans are not covering it in the United States. It's about $1,500 per month. And the way that they work, by the way, Chef AJ, which I think you heard me talk about on the podcast, um, but many people may not even realize there's so much hype around these drugs and they don't even, people don't talk about how they work. They, the way they work is by uh, supplementing or like boosting the levels of a gut produced hormone called GLP-1, GLP-1. This is produced by your gut. And um, so semaglutide can like basically replace this or, or boost the levels of this. And what that does is it makes it so that your stomach uh, fills up very quickly. You feel full. You're no longer hungry. You lose your appetite. And for that reason, you end up consuming less food. So, uh, but GLP-1 is interesting because there's clear evidence that fiber also boosts GLP-1. And 95% of America is fiber deficient. So from my perspective, with America, with not 19 out of 20 people in America not consuming adequate amounts of fiber, my thought is we should at least start there. Now, comparing fiber to this drug head to head, like they, they're not equal in terms of their effects. This drug is better at causing weight loss than fiber is. But like... Fiber doesn't have the side effects. Fiber doesn't have the cost. And fiber has way more evidence in terms of benefits outside of weight loss. So why would we not start there? Um, so that's the way that I feel. Now, that being said, like, again, I just want to reiterate, I don't want people to feel guilty if they do end up going on to this drug. Uh, Chef AJ, I've had people, and I don't want to get into the details of specific people or reveal anything because that would be an invasion of people's privacy, but I've had people who are completely plant-based and have like made the rounds and been to the plant-based places that you can go to get help and have been unsuccessful. And uh, if I had this drug available to me years ago, when I had come into contact with these people, I would have given it to them. So uh, I, I wouldn't make it sound like I, I would never use this drug. But what I do want people to hear is that I would start with diet and lifestyle first. I would make people try a high fiber diet first. And, um, and then you know, we can go down the line and see what happens from there. But you have to also know the risks and the benefits. Thank you. You know, do you think it's been studied long enough, though? Because you remember FenFen, like at first it was the rage, and then it, you know, they found that it caused the heart-lung defect. We don't know. You know, that's the issue here. That's that that's that's trying to be transparent about the risk, which is that the the most data that we have is we have a couple of years of people using Ozempic. Uh, for diabetes, not for weight loss, but but nonetheless, we do have a couple of years of that. We don't know what happens beyond a couple of years. Yeah. Um, so that, that's, I, um, I personally would wait <laughs> just <laughs> to see. 
you know. I mean, I feel I personally I feel that way too. Um, you know, that being said, um I think that for a person who is weighing choices between bariatric surgery versus this, that's a legitimate sort of weigh your options moment. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. Uh, so the last doctor that was on the show was talking about how he personally eats one meal a day. And I was saying, well, how do you, I mean, I can't imagine eating one meal a day because that would be like a huge meal to get in all the calories I need. And so John is asking, is it possible to have a healthy gut microbiome if we only eat mono meals and I'm curious if we only eat one meal a day. So mono meal meaning one meal a day or mono meal? Well, I think mono meal, he might mean like, I think some people eat like just potatoes in a meal, yeah. or just fruit. But I was also curious about people that do, he does OMAD one meal a day. Like does, it, does, does meal frequency and variety matter on a per meal basis? I think that there is this... Um pendulum that exists. And sometimes we swing the pendulum too far in the opposite direction. And so I think that we know that we're kind of overdoing it when um, we're, you know, starting our uh, food intake early in the morning, and then having lunch, and then having a snack, and then having dinner, and then having a snack after dinner, late at night, and then potentially having alcoholic beverages like that to me is a very American lifestyle. And that to me is an unhealthy lifestyle. And that's too much. You know, you never, you never give your body a chance to reset. You never give your gut a chance to rest. There's the general idea, Chef AJ, of giving at least 12 hours break between your last meal of the day and your, and your next meal in the next day. And 12 hours to me makes a lot of sense. You know, if you were to have dinner and make the rule that you're not going to have any, you know, any sort of caloric intake after dinner, no food, no snacks, no alcohol after dinner. Uh, then that basically winds you up to be able to eat again tomorrow morning. Um, and there's evidence to support that that's good for us. And when people move towards one meal a day, um, this to me is like getting a bit more on the extreme side in terms of time-restricted eating and limiting how often we're eating. And I don't know that that is sustainable. And I certainly don't believe that that's the right choice for everyone. I do believe there may be some people who feel perfectly comfortable and do well with that approach, but I think we have to be cautious to like make it sound like that's the choice for everyone. I don't think that that is in fact the case. So um, do I think that you're causing harm to your body by going to one meal a day? It would depend on what you're eating during that one meal. Um, it would also probably depend on the context of what your weight is currently and do you have other health related issues? So I, I think it's possible to do that and be okay. I just think that for the more majority of us, that's not going to make sense and it's not going to be sustainable. Thank you. A lot of people are asking the colonoscopy question, but specifically they're asking if someone follows a whole food plant exclusive diet, do you still recommend one? And would your answer change versus a screening one versus a diagnostic one? Um, so I think, you know, my position on this chef AJ, and there, there are people who feel otherwise than me. And, you know, I guess I'll, I'll just advocate for what I believe in. And this is my experience, uh, as a gastroenterologist and as the person who has done the colonoscopies and diagnosed the colon cancer and, and also diagnosed the polyps and the late stage polyps that are not yet cancer. And you actually are removing it before it's cancer and you're protecting someone. And the evidence for people who want to look into this 
uh, is clear. There is no study that says that eating a whole food plant-based diet will reduce your risk of colon cancer to 0%. There's no evidence to say that. And to uh, infer that would be wrong. The evidence from the Adventist 2 study looking at vegans showed that there was about a 22% reduction in the risk of developing colon cancer. Now, I will gladly take a 22% reduction. I think that's fantastic. But the issue is that we have 150,000 people who are being diagnosed with colon cancer on a yearly basis in the United States right now. And if we were to all go vegan, we would drop that number by 30,000, but we would still diagnose 120,000 colon cancers. So we have to um, recognize the threat is real and uh, being vegan does reduce our risk, but it does not reduce it to zero. And there is still a very substantial risk. Um, so what should we do? I personally think colonoscopy is the way to go. You can choose an alternative choice if you want. I, I myself, like actions speak for themselves. I, have, I myself had a colonoscopy at 40 years old because of family risk. And I could have done other choices. And I chose a colonoscopy. And that's because I wanted to know that I was safe. Um, so the advantage of a colonoscopy, Chef AJ, is that it um, it's a one-time event that allows you, you know, if, if it goes well and you are a normal risk person, you will not need another one for 10 years. And this one-time event allows you to get the complete view with the gold standard test for evaluating colon cancer risk and for identifying polyps. And they can be removed painlessly during the exam. So if you have a polyp, that polyp will be removed and that polyp will never turn into cancer once it is removed. The risk of that polyp goes to zero. And that is a beautiful thing. And then your monitoring after that can be adjusted based upon how high risk you are. So like how many polyps you have, how big are the polyps that allows us to make adjustments and how closely we monitor you. To me, it's a no brainer. You do it this one time, you make sure that you're safe. You don't want to be one of the statistics. I am not trying to fear monger people. I'm just trying to keep people safe. I have diagnosed way too many cancers in people who are before age 50. And I'm just like, I wish we could have just done a colonoscopy. Um, I have also diagnosed cancers among vegans. When I was in uh, my early years of my practice, I was in Savannah, Georgia, Chef AJ. I had a specific patient that comes to mind. She was a yoga instructor. She was vegan. And she told me there was no, there was no need. There was no way that she was ever going to get colon cancer. And she did. And that really hurt. And it still bothers me because I could have talked her into it. So um, from my perspective, the best that I can do is to not make that mistake again. Do you think if it's normal at age 40, they still should have another one in 10 years? Yeah, so the the issue is that you have a lifetime risk, and that risk that risk of developing colon cancer is not determined by one colonoscopy. That risk continues to mature and increase as you age. The risk never goes away; it just keeps getting higher. Um, the risk is personalized. Some people are higher risk than others, but nonetheless, um, you know your risk at fifty is going to be more than forty. Uh, so 
the reason why we do a 10 year thing is because we think it takes about 15 years for a polyp to mature into cancer. So we do 10 years so that we are making sure that we can check you before that small polyp that we may have missed will be able to mature in the cancer. We want to catch it before it's cancer. That's why it's 10 years. Got it. I wish they'd make the prep a little more pleasant for people. The prep stinks. It's not fun. Um, I will say that on my website, I have a, um, a protocol. You, you have to review it with your own medical doctor. Cause I can't, you know, obviously be your doctor and give medical advice through the internet or anything like that. But, um, I have a protocol is the protocol that I used with my patients. It's the protocol that I used myself. And to be honest with you, I found that it made things way easier. Nice. Thank you. So you, you don't ever prescribe the Cologuard then because you you just say, go straight to the colonoscopy. Cologuard. So uh, let's talk about Cologuard. Cologuard, for those who aren't familiar, this is a at-home stool test. So like the nice thing is it's super convenient because you're at home, you just give a little stool specimen, you send it through the mail and they come back with a result. All right. The problem with the Cologuard is that it's designed to detect cancer. It is not designed to detect polyps. And the problem with this is that like, I don't, if it's me, I don't want you to wait until I have cancer and then tell me you tell me that I have cancer. If it's me, I want you to find it before it's cancer and get it out. And that's what a polyp is. A polyp is the precursor to cancer. You will never have, it's extremely rare to have symptoms from polyps. You, it's quite, it's very rare. So you will generally not know that the polyp is in there. This is why we do screening because we can't wait for you to have symptoms. The, the point at which people have symptoms is not just cancer. It's usually a late stage cancer when people develop symptoms. So with the Cologuard, um, it's not going to tell you whether or not, like effectively, it's not going to tell you whether or not you have a, a polyp. If you have cancer, there's still a miss rate that is higher than I'm willing to accept. So like you could have cancer and there's an 8% chance that the test will tell you it's normal. Well, that to me, it means that there's an 8% chance that that's going to be life-threatening. Because if there is cancer, you need to get it taken care of immediately. You can't miss it. If you miss it, you're in big trouble. Um, and then there's a false positive rate. So the false positive basically means that the test says that you got something going on, but you don't have anything going on. And yet it then pushes you towards doing the colonoscopy. So um, to me, I like I, I the, the the downsides that are there with the Cologuard, I personally don't like. Chef AJ, where when will I do a Cologuard? When would I do a Cologuard? There is there are situations. The main situation where I would do a Cologuard is uh, a person says to me, Doctor B, like I'm not doing a colonoscopy. And if that's the, if that's the uh, scenario that we have you know, and we unpack it. Like I would be very open to having a conversation about that. I'm not going to ram it down someone's throat, force them to do something they don't want to do. I would never do that. But if after having a conversation about it and they say, I'm not going to do a colonoscopy, I will talk them into a Cologuard because at least if I can get the Cologuard, it's something, something is better than nothing. Yeah. That makes sense. Here's a question on loose stools from Steph. She says, Dr. B, thanks for all you do. You touched briefly on loose stools with a plant-based diet on another podcast. Can you speak a bit more on this? It seems abnormal and a little bit counterintuitive. 
Yeah, well, so for the majority of people, you are um, the majority of people adding fiber to your diet will usually result in uh, better bowel movements. Dietary fiber, if you are loose, usually has the effect of helping to form it up. And um, if you're constipated, usually has the effect of moving you towards more regularity and getting things moving. So that's the effect of dietary fiber. So most of the time it's going to help you, but there are scenarios where it may not. And so one of them is that you have a food intolerance. There are some people who um, they may have um, uh, sucrose intolerance and sucrose is the thing that you find in table sugar, but you will also find it in plenty of healthy plant-based foods. And for example, beets. <laughs> And so you drink that beet juice, it's high in sucrose. And because your body struggles to process and digest it, you then may go on to have diarrhea as a result of that. And that's a food intolerance. So there are ways in which um, transitioning towards a plant-based diet can actually aggravate uh, food intolerances for some people that may result in the development of diarrhea so or a loose stool. So uh, I think that the point with that is it really comes down to a diagnostic evaluation of asking the question, like, what is causing these symptoms and finding that diagnosis and then treating that. That's the key. And terrific. Virginia says, is gluten good or bad for the gut? Should everyone avoid it? Well, I think the end question, the last question is the important one. Should everyone avoid it? The answer is no. Um, if you have celiac disease, you definitely should avoid it. There's no doubt about that. Uh, the vast majority of people who do not have celiac disease can safely consume gluten-containing foods without a problem. The issue is, in most cases, not the gluten. In most cases, the issue is something else. It could be the fructans that you find in wheat, barley, and rye. By the way, wheat, barley, and rye are the gluten-containing foods. Fructans are a type of FODMAP that can trigger GI symptoms. And we have evidence to indicate that it's not the gluten that triggers GI symptoms, it's the fructans. Now, one of the things that you can do to reduce the fructan content is to ferment the food. So sourdough bread, for example, is often tolerated very well by people who have gluten intolerance. If that's the case, I declare victory on that because to me, sour, like a, a healthy organic sourdough, ideally made yourself, to me is the way to go. Um, that is the healthiest type of bread out there. So um, it could be the fructans. The other issue is that a lot of gluten-containing foods are ultra-processed foods. It may not be the gluten. It could be the processing. Another point is that it may not be the gluten. It could be what's being sprayed on the wheat, like glyphosate. So if it's not organic, most of the time, wheat will be sprayed with glyphosate, which is Roundup. It's the same thing that you use to kill the weeds in your yard. Hopefully you don't use it, but many people will use it to kill the weeds in their yard. Um, glyphosate is um, an herbicide. It kills plants. And in the case of wheat, you're not using it to kill the weeds. In the case of wheat, you're using it to kill the wheat because you have to dry the wheat out in order to move forward with manufacturing and production. And so it's, it's used to basically like dry out the wheat 
and then it's in your food supply. So this is why when I opt for bread, I want whole grain, I want organic, and whenever possible, I'm going for the fermented, which is the sourdough. I also like rye bread. Well, those are the two best breads anyway. Exactly. Yeah. Hey, so Marley wants to know, can a hiatal hernia be reversed with diet, specifically a whole food plant-based diet? It's a tough one. Uh, so a hiatal hernia for people who are wondering what we're talking about here, at the bottom of your um, uh, esophagus, so your esophagus is supposed to line up with your diaphragm. Your diaphragm is that muscle underneath your lungs right in here on my, where you can see on my chest, where if you take a deep breath in, the diaphragm actually moves down as it pulls air into your lungs. Okay. So this diaphragm is moving up and down as you breathe, usually about 14 to 18 times a minute. All right. It's moving up and down. And um, as a part of that, the diaphragm is actually pinching. And that's meant to, the diaphragm pinching is meant to line up with the lower esophageal sphincter, which is the bottom of the esophagus. When you have a hiatal hernia, what's happened is that the lower esophageal sphincter has moved up and the stomach is pushing through the diaphragm. This is the diaphragm right here. The stomach is pushing through the diaphragm up into your chest. So you have separated the diaphragm, which is pinching from the lower esophageal sphincter, which is up above it and is closing. And this cause, this can cause people to have acid reflux. It's an anatomical issue. Um, that's the problem. It's an anatomical issue. And it, it can depend, like this is very individual. So it could be a laxity of the ligaments that are involved in your diaphragm. That's the problem is like you could be skinny and have a hiatal hernia just because those ligaments get loose and relaxed. Um, for people who uh, have a hiatal hernia that is the result of abdominal pressure, which is typically weight gain, so if you, if you gain weight, particularly in your abdomen, it can increase the pressure within your abdomen and it will push things up into your chest. And that's how you develop a hiatal hernia. And for those people, transitioning to a whole food plant-based diet is a strategy that allows them to lose weight. And when they lose weight, then things fall back into alignment because you no longer have that increased pressure in your abdomen. So that's the re that's the way in which a whole food plant-based diet could potentially be a solution for a hydrohernia. Perfect. Thanks. So Stephanie says that she is a big fan of sprouting as you are, and you say to add sprouts to the S foods, salads, sandwiches, and soups. She wants to know when you add sprouts to a hot soup, do they keep all of their nutrients and antioxidants? Uh, that is a great question. So if it's too hot, meaning like you have boiling water, boiling soup, and then you throw the sprouts in there, you are actually going to um, uh, break down the enzymes that you need in order to get the benefit from the sprouts. As the this, as this soup cools down, the sprouts actually, it can actually enhance the um, nutritional value in the sprouts. So they've done like these, these tests, Chef AJ, where they look specifically at broccoli sprouts and how much sulforaphane you get. And there is a benefit to heating up the sprouts to some level. But when you cross the line of going too far, then actually you're just going to get rid of it. You're going to basically get rid of this enzyme and not get any benefit. So um, what I would do is wait until it's at a temperature that is actually a temperature that you can actually consume. And if you do that, then obviously it's not so hot that it's going to destroy the nutritional value in the sprouts. Perfect. I do the same thing with miso, by the way. 
So with miso, I, I don't want to kill the living aspect of miso. You know, miso is a fermented food, so it has living microbes. And if you throw it into boiling, boiling hot water, um, you're just going to kill the you're going to kill the living microbes. It's still good for you, but you're going to kill the living microbes. So with miso, what I'll do is I'll wait for the water to get a temperature that I'm ready to consume it, and then that's when I add my miso right at the end. Makes sense. I've heard that. That's great. Sonia wants to know: Is there a correlation between taking antibiotics and having leaky gut? Well, yeah, um, there's no faster way to alter the microbiome than to take antibiotics. You start taking antibiotics and in instantly it's going to radically change your microbiome. Um, and uh, if you uh, do that, then, you know, depending on how long the antibiotics are on, your gut, it will require a period of time to bounce back. And if during that time that it's bouncing back, you hit it with more antibiotics, then you're digging yourself deeper and deeper into a hole. And there are some people who, you know, for example, could have um, chronic sinusitis or something like that, that require repeated, you know, ear infections when you're a kid, repeated courses of antibiotics. And these can be potentially problematic. You know, if you need the antibiotics, you need the antibiotics. I'm not here to argue that you skip the antibiotics. You, you have to weigh the risks. But I think that the big question or the big issue surrounding this Chef AJ is that if you look at antibiotic use in the United States, the evidence suggests that the vast majority of antibiotics that are prescribed are actually not necessary. And to take antibiotics that are not necessary is a mistake. There is no free lunch. Like there's a downside to this. And so that to me is like having a conversation with your doctor. Why do I need this? What is my alternative choice? What happens if I don't take these antibiotics? And these are okay questions to ask. You're not trying to push your doctor to not give you the antibiotic. You're just trying to ask sincere questions of like, what are, what, like inform, I want to make, I want to be informed before I consent. And so that's the way that I would approach that with antibiotics. Great. Oh, here's a great question from Apple. What foods are we supposed to eat when we prepare for the colonoscopy? Because they, a lot of times they'll tell you just eat like protein. And if you're vegan, high fiber, it can be challenging. Yeah, that's actually something that I lay out in my, I have my colonoscopy prep guide. So for anyone who's interested in that, just head over to my website. And if you have trouble finding it, just shoot me a message on social media and I'll help you find it. But um, that's something that I lay out in there. And, you know, the approach from a vegan perspective is that what you want are foods that are not going to um, stick inside your colon and be hard to, to flush through. So in a way, normally speaking, I am in favor of, for example, raw food. Normally speaking, I'm in favor of salads. Normally speaking, I am in favor of whole grains. But this is the time where you actually turn that on its head for a brief period of a couple of days. And you, instead of doing like whole grains, you would do white rice. Um, and instead of doing a salad, you would homogenize the salad. Homogenizing is another way of blending. Say, saying blending, you would make a smoothie, right? So like, it's not that fiber is the problem. The issue is that if you eat kale, like a kale salad, and you chew that kale, no matter how much you think you chewed that kale up, it's going to have these big pieces of kale that are just not going to get digested, and they're going to sit in your colon, and they're going to be hard to flush out. That's the issue with uh, as you prepare for your colonoscopy. If you took the exact same kale, and you put it into a smoothie, and you blended it up, it's small little pieces, and those small little pieces are not a problem at all. I would imagine beans, maybe not this good, but right before a colonoscopy. 
Yeah, things with skins are problematic um, because the the issue is those skins, you know, similar to the kale, um, the skins are not going, no matter how much you chew them, they're not going to disappear and they will be something that your body can't break down. That's insoluble fiber. So beans are an example of something with skins. Other ones that come to mind are things like peppers um, or apples or things like that. Yeah, that makes sense. Lula wants to know, can anything be done for scar tissue in the colon? In the colon or outside the colon? Did she specify? In the colon. It's scar tissues in the colon. Well, most people who have scar tissue in the colon, it's either that you had a big polyp removed or more frequently, the reason why people have scar tissue is that they had inflammatory bowel disease. Um, So like you could have ulcerative colitis and ulcerative colitis will cause scar tissue because of the inflammation. And um, there's not much that you can do about the scar tissue that's literally inside your colon. It does increase, if you have scar tissue, then that means that you've had a significant amount of inflammation. And even uh, uh, even if you are in, let's pretend that you have ulcerative colitis and you have scar tissue in your colon. Even if you are in remission for the rest of your life, the risk of developing colon cancer has been ratcheted up substantially because of the inflammation that existed previously. You could have zero inflammation going forward, but the inflammation that was already there has compromised the DNA in that area of those cells. And so the risk is increased. So th- these are people that need a higher level of um, surveillance. And that's actually what we do with people with ulcerative colitis is when you get to a certain stage with your ulcerative colitis, we check them more frequently with colonoscopy just to ensure that we're keeping them safe. Um, there's also scar tissue that exists inside the abdomen, which is typically from surgery. And unfortunately, there's not much that you can do to prevent or stop those those uh, that scar tissue. Mm. Great. Let's see. Here's a question. I just saw it. Um, this is interesting. I have hiccups every time I eat bread since I was a little girl, says Irene. Does that mean that I have an intolerance to wheat or gluten? That's interesting. Uh, I would challenge. So here's an interesting, there's some experiments that you could do with this. Um, One is to try rye bread and see if you get the same thing. Rye bread still contains gluten, but it's not wheat. So I would try doing that and see what happens. Um, You could similarly try eating barley. Barley contains gluten, but is not wheat. Um, I would uh, consider trying sourdough because again, sourdough, the fermentation process actually transforms the food. And so there's a a difference between like the constitution of sourdough bread versus typical bread. Um, Those are some of the things that I would try. That's an interesting question. And it's hard for me to be be totally clear without more info. Uh, Gina wants to know, do you miss uh, private practice and seeing patients? I do actually. So, uh, about a year ago, it was February of 2022. Um, I left my practice and it wasn't an easy choice for me. Um, but I, at the same time felt like I had to. So a couple of things, one is that everything that was happening in my life, there were these amazing opportunities for me to try to do something that I felt was bigger, meaning like something that could impact millions of lives as opposed to the lives of my patients here locally. Um, <clears throat> so I had these opportunities. And at the same time, um, 
my kids, like I felt like the way in which I was working was having an effect on my children. So I was waking up at five in the morning and I would be out the door before my kids woke up and um, working at Starbucks to like write books and stuff like that. And then go to work, work from uh, 8 a.m. until like, you know, five o'clock or whatever. And then come home, eat dinner with my kids and put them down to bed. And that's how much I saw them during the week. Um, and then I would go back to work. And so didn't get to see my wife that much either. And you kind of get to a point where like this, something has to give. So I felt like here's the choice. You either uh, continue down a path of being a medical doctor here in this private practice in a traditional sense, and you serve these patients and you do the best that you can. And that's a great thing. There's nothing wrong with that choice. But alternatively, the choice is to pursue this higher calling of trying to impact the lives of millions of people um, through this platform that I've been blessed with that I frankly didn't know this was going to happen, but it did happen. And so that that's sort of the situation that I felt that I was in. Um, so nonetheless, here I am. And um, I'm in this new phase of my career where I'm sort of focused on this bigger picture thing. I miss the patients. I miss the people. I miss the one-on-one -on -one interactions. I'm, I've talked to my wife about this many times. There's downsides to all the things that happen in your life. There's just a lot of good, and they can also be things that, that you struggle with or are challenges. And so my expectation is that there will be patient encounters. I'm actually in the process um, behind you know, closed doors and privacy, having conversations with people about how best for me to do this, but that will be happening. Nice. And when you say platform, you mean like Instagram where you're crushing it. How many hours a day do you think you spend doing it? As few as possible. <laughs> <laughs> uh, when, when I say platform, I really mean the book, the books. Um, you know, Chef AJ, when I got my book deal in 2018, I had 25,000 followers. And my publisher took a chance on me. They didn't know what would happen. That's 25,000. It's not a lot. And um, when the book came out, Fiberfields, I had 85,000 followers. And, you know, now here I am and I'm closing in on 500,000. Amazing. Congratulations. Um, thank you. The amount of work with that, it's really hard because I would much rather be doing other things than being on social media. It's what I hear from a lot of people. And I don't particularly care for it. It's not, it, 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 this may seem like it's counterintuitive. I don't know, but like, I don't particularly care for social media, but at the same time, I fully recognize that it has opened up doors and opportunities for me. So to me, it's trying to find the right balance of doing that and doing it well, not neglecting it. That would be foolish. But at the same time, like there are other things that I'm working on that I care about a lot more. I get it. Thank you. I Jody says, should she be concerned about having been told she has colonic hemorrhoids after her most recent colonoscopy? Well, I mean, I kind of feel like Jody, it's hard for me to fully comment. Uh, let me say this. I first of all, I think we all have hemorrhoids. And so it's not a question of do you see hemorrhoids on colonoscopy? It's a question of how big are the hemorrhoids that you see? Now, different doctors handle this different ways, which is why it's a little bit hard for me to fully comment because um because uh, some doctors never comment on hemorrhoids and some doctors comment on them every single report. I was one of the guys that every single report, it was, it was not a question, do you have hemorrhoids? It was, are they small? Are they medium? Are they large? 
Now, what really matters is, regardless of whether they're small, medium, or large, what, what really matters is actually the symptoms. Do they bleed? Do you feel them popping out? Um, do you ever have prolapse of the, of the rectum or the hemorrhoids? Um, do you get itching of the bottom? Um, is there ever any leakage? So leakage doesn't mean full-scale incontinence necessarily, but it's like a little bit of uh, stuff that you don't want to be there. Those are the symptoms of hemorrhoids. And if that's the case, bleeding, itching, uh, popping out, or a little bit of leakage, if that's the case, then regardless of whether they're small, medium, or large, they're symptomatic. And when they're symptomatic, then um, they should be addressed. And addressing them, typically the first step is actually to increase dietary fiber. Perfect. Thanks. Nancy would like to know if you could talk about SIBO and are people that have had gastric bypass perhaps more likely to have it? People that have had gastric bypass. Now, it depends on which surgery we're talking about, but most of the time what we're referring to is called a Bruin-Y surgery. And uh, those people clearly are at increased risk. So any GI surgery where you are rearranging the intestines, meaning a cut to the intestines and then a reconnection, automatically increases the risk of developing SIBO. Uh, SIBO is a complicated topic, Chef AJ. In my, um, you could almost do a summit on that, right? Oh, easily. I could do. I could easily talk for two and a half hours on this topic. So, uh, in the Fiberfields Cookbook, I touched on this just a little bit more than I have in the past. I think that the issue, and I did talk also. I did a recent gas and bloating course where I talked about this a little bit more. Um, so, for people who really want to dig into that, particularly if you have gas and bloating and you're trying to figure it out, the gas and bloating course may be for you. Uh, the issue with SIBO is that we have to make sure that you really have SIBO. And we have to look at treatments that don't involve antibiotics first. That's the issue. And that's hard because the way that people are currently being treated is not to, to be careful about diagnosing it. In fact, if anything, it's a trendy diagnosis of everyone's got SIBO. And the second thing is that like antibiotics are being given liberally, not judiciously. Um, that to me is a problem because antibiotics as I was talking about earlier, once you take them, you can't take them back and they will impact your microbiome massively. Yeah, thanks. Let's see. Oh, here's an interesting question from Sonia. Are raw vegans less likely to get colon cancer? <clears throat> I have not seen a study to clearly say that. Um, I will share my opinion, this is an opinion, on raw versus not. I do think there are benefits to raw. Um, given the choice between raw and otherwise, like I think raw is great. That being said, that does not mean that cooking your food makes the food unhealthy or even less healthy. In some cases, it's more healthy by cooking the food. Tomatoes are a classic example of this. When you cook tomatoes, you enhance the availability of a um, uh, phytonutrient called lycopene. And lycopene helps to protect us from heart disease and cancer. And so you get them from cooked tomatoes, not as much from raw tomatoes. So um, my personal take is I think eating raw is great. I think it's a dietary pattern that there are definitely some advantages to, 
but I think it's just as advantageous to, to have some raw and some cooked. And I tend to favor that because I also think it's a more sustainable approach. Yeah. Somebody's wondering, um, they follow you on Instagram. I'd like, do you go live certain times? Like, is there, do you have a schedule? Do you ever like do Q and A's on your Instagram? No, I, it's, it's hard for me. I'm, I'm so like, I'm constantly backed up with work and I do the best that I can, but I'm literally constantly backed up with work. So, um, the lives that I do on social media these days are mostly either if I'm launching something like this right now, the, uh, empowered gut summit that starts tomorrow, or if I'm helping one of my friends launch their book, then I'll do an Instagram live to support them in their book. And that's so nice of you. Thank you for doing that. Yeah. Oh, it's my pleasure. I mean, look, I'm telling everybody to please register now for tomorrow's summit. It's about three hours of viewing a day. Is it? Um, it's probably about three hours of viewing per day. The sessions are not an hour apiece. You don't have to watch everything. You don't have to feel like, oh, if I can't do three hours a day, then I shouldn't do this. There's recipes on a daily basis. So if nothing else, just take the recipes. <laughs> but also I would expect for, for a lot of people, probably the majority of people, you're not gonna have time to watch all of them. Pick the ones that you're interested in, do those. And then the other ones, like if you want, you can just either skim through them real quick or um, or just not watch them. That's up, that's up to you. I mean, there's certainly no obligation to watch everything. I love that it starts so early Pacific time because I'll be able to watch the whole thing before my day even starts. Yeah, that is kind of cool is uh, you'll have the, those things available. But like, even if it didn't, you know, uh, Chef AJ, people can watch it whenever. So in the UK, it'll be, let's see. Uh, nine, it'll be two in the afternoon when these videos go live in the UK. Okay, cool. You get home from work and it's the evening. You can watch them then. I mean, literally, you can watch them whenever you want. You have up until the 17th to watch them. I'll be watching you on my spin bike tomorrow. <laughs> That's there we go. Yep, yep. Oh, here's a fun question. What are your thoughts on bidet? Asks Carol. I'm a huge fan. I don't think that comes as a big surprise, but I'm a huge fan. So um, we got one. A couple of years ago, it was right before the pandemic started. And then it's there's a toilet paper shortage. And I was laughing hysterically as I was enjoying my bidet because everyone else was like, you know, uh going crazy trying to get toilet paper. And I was just not even worried about it. But anyway, um, I think bidets are great. I mean, you know, it's I think it's a higher level of cleanliness and it's comfortable. And so I, I see no downsides. Nice. Thank you. Well, you know, I could talk to you for hours, but you it's a holiday. You have a family. I so appreciate you doing this. And thank you for answering all those questions. And we learned a lot. And I will be there at 6 a.m. tomorrow for the start of your summit. And I hope you guys will too. There's been a link I've been posting the entire time. Also in the chat, it's free. What do you got to lose? And you have a whole week to watch. Amazing. Thank you, Chef AJ. Thank you for having me on uh, on a holiday. Happy Easter Sunday to everyone. And I appreciate you for um spend time with us. It's always a treat. Thanks so much, Dr. Wilby. And thanks all of you for watching another episode of Chef AJ Live. Please come back tomorrow when my guest is Lauren Burnick. She's going to be making vegan French onion soup. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye.